This episode might contain scenes that include violence and other sensitive details. Listener discretion is advised. Also, do hit the notification bell so you won't miss the next episode. Enjoy! Inside a small village of Medan, the largest city of Indonesia's North Sumatra province, the community's highly respected spiritual leader was in handcuffs, sitting inside an interrogation room at the police station. Arrested and charged for the murder of Sri Kamala Dewi, a 21-year-old girl that was found dead and buried in the sugarcane plantation fields nearby. Since murders were not a common occurrence in the village, one can only imagine the horror of the villagers when they learned that the perpetrator was their revered spiritual leader, the almighty Dukun. Earlier on, police had ransacked his home and found the personal belongings of the girl. Her dress, bracelet and handbag were left in the Dukun's house after he brought her to the plantation and killed her with his bare hands. An eerie silence loomed throughout the village. The Dukun, Ahmad Saraji, said this during an interview about the case. We are all human. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. However, the reason why Ahmad Saraji would rise to infamy wasn't because he killed one young woman. I didn't suspect I was going to get caught. I didn't run away when I saw the police. I had resigned to my fate. Ahmad Sarachi had confessed to police officers in the interrogation room about a series of murders that he had committed prior to 21-year-old Dewi. The numbers rose from 2 to 6, 13, then 24, then 30, before he said, If I remember correctly, I've murdered 42 women. This is Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by Mediacorp and produced by OneUp Media. The news of Ahmad Sarachi's confession stunned the people of Indonesia and the local police. The villagers of Amandasai were shaken by the fact that a crime so heinous could be committed on their soil. If the murder of a single woman was enough to make the local community live in fear, no one could have been prepared for the death of 42. Hours after the confession, a large-scale excavation process was carried out on the very same grounds of the sugarcane plantation where 21-year-old Dewi was discovered. The Indonesian authorities had to summon a team of bulldozers to dig up the area. They dug for hours, an ordeal that involved the local police, army and government officials. Bodies upon bodies were hoisted out of the dirt by forklifts. Some of them decomposed to the point where they were unidentifiable. 
Authorities had the remains laid in a single file along the edge of the plantation to count and identify the victims one by one. Putrid and sickening smells emerged from the area, sending some of the workers away in disgust. But by the end of the process, Amatsurachi was right. A staggering 42 bodies were found, or at least what was left of the victims. The remains were sent to a forensic lab facility in the city of Maidan. Amatsurachi was right again. The lab confirmed that the victims were aged between 17 and 40, all of whom were women. The murder charge against Surachi was then amended from 1 to 42. It's certainly not easy to comprehend why Ahmad Surachi would commit such a heinous crime. According to the late Dr. George McGrath, Professor Emeritus of Legal Medicine at Harvard Medical School, the top three motives behind nearly all murders in recent history are robbery, jealousy, and vengeance. However, in this case, everything was completely different. Amatsuraji wanted greatness. To be precise, he wanted to be the greatest sorcerer in all of Indonesia. But like all paths to greatness, it comes with a price. The real question is, how far one is willing to go to achieve it? Some people sacrifice time and money, while others sacrifice their passions and hobbies. For Amatsuraji, it was neither this nor that. There isn't much information out there about Ahmad's early life, but we do know a few things. Firstly, he was married to three wives, all of whom were siblings. Secondly, we know that a lot of women believed in his beautifying services, therefore making up the majority of his clientele. And lastly, his late father's influence played a major role in his decision to become a sorcerer. That last point about his father would be a critical piece of information behind the motive of his killings. It was 1986, more than a decade before Sri Kamala Dewi's body was discovered in the sugarcane plantation. Amatsuraji was 37 years old. Word had already reached the neighbouring villages that he was a powerful spiritual healer. Besides being a dukun, Ahmad was also a cattle breeder, a mundane life that was full of repetition. As his last client for the day left his house, Ahmad let out a sigh while he looked out the window at the sugarcane plantation. His mind drifted almost into a deep meditative trance. As he laid down in bed, he couldn't stop thinking about his late father, as well as the exhausting repetitive motions in his life. Perhaps it was the persistent thoughts about his father, because that night, Ahmad had a dream he would never forget. Ahmad, do you want power? Papa, is that you? Ahmad replied. What are you willing to do for power? I'll do anything, please. Please teach me, Papa. Ahmad said, Listen carefully, Ahmad. Drink the saliva of 70 women and I guarantee you will be invincible. Wake up, wake up, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> a 
Ahmad woke up in cold sweat, his hands and lips trembling. Seventy women, and I guarantee you will be invincible. The words of his father circled in his mind. He got out of bed, looked at the sugarcane plantation again, and softly whispered to himself, "I'm going to be the most powerful, most revered, and most mighty sorcerer of all. If what Papa says is true." Then I better get started. With that, Ahmad started plotting his master plan to drink the saliva of seventy women. He knew that getting the victims was not the toughest part of the operation, since the majority of his clients were female. He could easily get over seventy women in a week. However, the real problem was getting to drink their saliva. As his thirst for power grew more and more desperate, he needed to find a way, fast. Amatsuraji was having lunch with his three wives. Overnight, he had already devised a plan to obtain the saliva of the women, but quickly realized there was no way he could accomplish it alone. I need all of your help, Amat said to his wives. I need all three of you to do something for me, and before you ask me what it is, you should know that this is something very important for all of us. According to our records, all three of Amatsuraji's wives greatly supported him on his new quest to gain more power. However, the eldest of the sisters, Tumini, would be the most active amongst the three. What's the plan, Amat? Tumini said to her husband. Amat set his foot down, paused for a moment. And spoke, seventy of them is all I need. We'll get them here, and I'll personally kill them. I need you to help me bury the bodies and make sure you bury them facing the house, so I can further increase my power. I want them to watch my success, even in the afterlife. Ahmad knew the only way he could drink the saliva of so many women was if they were dead. Getting all the women to the house wasn't the problem. The problem was to avoid detection by the police, but this problem was an easy fix. Most of the women who came to him asked for one of two things: to make themselves more physically attractive, or to stop their husbands from cheating on them. His macabre activities could easily escape detection because the women were too embarrassed to tell their friends and family where they were going. Additionally, he told every female client that had come. To stay quiet about their visits to him, he warned them that if anybody else knew, it would invalidate the spells he had previously cast on them. A significant portion of his clientele also included prostitutes seeking for ways to attract more customers, since many prostitutes had no familial ties and the industry they worked in was an extremely dangerous and isolated one. It was possible that killing prostitutes would be the best solution moving forward. Despite all of this, Ahmad was also aware that he had to be careful. He couldn't just kill every single prostitute that had come his way. If he was going to get away with killing seventy women, he needed to be extremely selective and cautious. Seventy was a high number to achieve, but to Ahmad Saraji, it was a firm target.
one by one, these women would pay him a visit for his healing and beautifying prowess. The women that came to him for help had placed their trust in Ahmad. Hence, they were willing to do whatever he said, even if his methods were unusual. Ahmad would identify potential victims, then lead them into a deep hole dug in the ground out in the sugarcane fields that surrounded his home. He would bury them neck deep in the ground under the pretense that it was all part of the ritual. Once Ahmad was certain there was no way out for them, he would pull out a cord from his pocket, wrap it around their necks, and cut off their air supply. It would take approximately 15 seconds for his victims to lose consciousness. But Ahmad was also aware that after the brain's supply of blood and oxygen was restored, one could possibly regain consciousness. Therefore, he persisted in gripping them around their necks until nothing could be done to bring them back. The almighty healer Ahmad Saraji turned out to be a monster. He had lured these women into their own graves. Once they were dead, Ahmad collected and drank their saliva. In order for his victims to decompose faster, he also had them stripped naked. With the aid of his wives, the victims were buried in the ground with their faces turned towards his home. It's reported that Ahmad Saraji believed having his victims face his home would direct more power towards him. Year after year, the killings continued. Yet, no one suspected anything of the revered sorcerer. As the death toll rose, his army of decomposing female corpses would increase. Eleven years after his first victim, there were 42 decomposing bodies in the sugarcane plantation. He had killed all of them in similar fashion, drank their saliva, and left them in the ground with their heads turned towards his home. Back at the local police station, Ahmad Sarachi was seated in the interrogation room. News of the 42 dead women were reported across the country. Hundreds of angry villagers surrounded the station, demanding justice for their beloved daughters, wives and mothers. According to our sources, Ahmad harboured no sympathy for the victims and showed no remorse for his actions. In fact, he started displaying signs of anger. He admitted to the police that he was furious about falling short of his goal. He dwelled on the fact that he had only drunk the saliva of 42 dead women, repeating to authorities that 42 simply wasn't enough. It should have been 70. 42 isn't enough. I promised him 70. He told me 70. Ahmad Saraji and his three wives were subsequently put behind bars. The eldest among the wives, Tumini, was seen as the main accomplice and sentenced to death. However, the sentence was short-lived as it was later commuted to lifetime imprisonment. The luck of the sorcerer had run out as he stood in front of a three-judge panel with a 363-page charge sheet read aloud to him. In the tiny courtroom, more than a hundred spectators were crammed inside, while another hundred stood outside the doors and watched the proceedings on a television screen. On the 27th of April, 1998, 12 years after his first kill, Ahmad Saraji was sentenced to death. 
Loud cheers erupted from the crowd and tears of joy were shed. It was a sight to behold as the families of the victims finally got the closure they desperately needed. Earlier on in the episode, we mentioned a statement given by Amatsurachi during a live interview. Now that we know the severity of his acts, his words have become far more disturbing. We are all human. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. I didn't suspect I was going to get caught. I didn't run away when I saw the police. I had resigned to my fate. On the 10th of July, 2008, Ahmad Saraji, accompanied by prison guards, walked from his cell to a quiet location surrounded by thick forestry. Blindfolded, he stood beneath a tree with his back against a large brick wall. The peaceful silence of dawn was broken by the sounds of gunshots. this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, you can reach out to us via email at heinous at oneupmediapodcast.com or through our Instagram or TikTok page at heinous underscore oneupmedia. This episode of Heinous was researched, produced and written by Yo Guangjin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks as well to executive producers Danny Cordy and Barry Toe from Mediacorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous.